This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Under the Tree, our seminar on freedom. Happy to have you join us here for this, our 50th episode. It seems like some kind of happy milestone to me, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eileen, Roxana Espos, and Jordan Allen, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aline for our seminar on freedom. Thanks to Tom Morello for Let Freedom Ring, the opening theme song for each episode. And thanks as well for Tom's activism, his steady quest for justice, for peace, and for freedom. Tom has a dazzling new book out called Whatever It Takes. It's a photo book that tracks his lifelong mission as an artist and an activist. Pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word. TomMorelloBook.com. We're going to hear from Tom throughout this episode because we had the great good fortune to meet up in New York State. Bill will explain more in a minute. We typically broadcast from the so-called Chicagoland area, but today we're happily traveling to the Adirondack Mountains, traditional home of the Mohawk Nation and other members of the Iroquois League or the Iroquois Confederacy. And as long as we're switching things up a bit, let's go back to the opening, this time with a twist. That was Teresa Bearfox of the Aguasasne Mohawk people, offering an opening address to the John Brown Day Centennial in May 2022. Bernadine presented Tom Morello with the Spirit of John Brown Freedom Award, and he took the stage. I'd like to dedicate the song to all the John Browns, past, present, and especially future. Amen. Called Let Freedom Ring. Here at John Brown's farm in upstate New York, to honor the great abolitionist and freedom fighter, to seek inspiration for the liberation struggles of our own time, Let freedom ring. and to recommit ourselves to the fight for black freedom and human Let liberation. I'd like to take a moment of reflection now. Just pause the podcast and write freely or meditate on this prompt. How do people get free? How have they done it traditionally, historically, and how can we do it now and in the future? We'll be right here when you return. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Louder. Let freedom ring. Let We begin each episode of the podcast with a poem, and here is Langston Hughes' classic poem, I Too. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. 
Here's an interesting historic note to keep in mind as you listen today. Langston Hughes traces his ancestry to Louis Leary, one of the black abolitionists who died with John Brown at Harper's Ferry in 1859. Leary's widow married John Mercer Langston and moved to Kansas. Their daughter Caroline Mercer Langston married James Hughes, and their son, James Mercer Langston Hughes, became the well-known Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes. In the 1960s, Bernadine Dorn and I were leaders of the radical student movement that fought against the Vietnam War and that worked hand in hand with the Black Freedom Movement. We were affiliated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the work that we did was largely coordinated with that, that group and that, and that movement. So we felt that SNCC at that time was the new abolitionists and we felt they traced a history all the way back to Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and John Brown. And for us, John Brown represented a white person in US history who stood shoulder to shoulder with the black movement and was willing to give his life. We saw that as a model. Bernie and I were underground for 11 years. And one of the first things we did when we were underground is we made a pilgrimage to Harper's Ferry because we wanted to see the great man, the old man. And we found in the course of the next few years that as we traveled around the country, as we met up with other comrades and colleagues, we found pockets of abolition everywhere in Oberlin, Ohio, at Kent State, Ohio, in Cleveland, in Chicago. There were places where people had mobilized to support and not only support, but to defend black people and their right to full citizenship, to their full humanity. We wanted to be on that side of history. And that's what we intended to do. That's what we work to do um, day in and day out in our organizing, in our teaching. We were underground for 11 years. When we came above ground, Bernadine went back and, and passed the bar and became a lawyer and started a project at Northwestern University. I got my doctorate and became a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And my teaching was completely characterized by the abolitionist movement, by the movements we'd been a part of. That is, it wasn't teaching that was trying to convey certified knowledge to the ignorant um, children or, or students. It was a kind of education that began with asking questions and, and posing problems. Who are you? What do you have that you want to keep? What do you need that uh, you don't have access to? That model was borrowed from the Freedom Schools in 1963, which were a project of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They were a project of um, the Black Freedom Movement broadly. They were a project of the Highlander Center. So we drew on that as inspiration. And, um, you know, we, we were driven and are still driven by what I think of as a kind of politics of hope. That is, it's easy to look at this country and just be depressed at some of the stuff going on. We're sitting here today in the wake of um, understanding that Roe versus Wade is going to be reversed. And the most basic freedom of women to have the integrity of their own bodies is being undermined by a group of old white men who are the most reactionary people in the world. And you can get frustrated. You can get absolutely crazy in situations like that. But we remind ourselves that we're not optimists, nor are we pessimists. That is, we don't know what's going to happen. And because we don't know, we embrace the politics of hope. That is, we get up every morning thinking, maybe today we'll abolish the system. Maybe today we'll overthrow capitalism. And we go to bed slightly disappointed, but get up the next morning determined to do the same. And that's a kind of rhythm that keeps us going. 
Um, but I think it's important to remind ourselves that, that the country is wildly divided, that we have a huge base that goes back to the beginning of our country for white supremacy, that that base has never been more organized and more led by power than it is today. And yet, what we do or don't do will make a difference and can make a difference. So we find ourselves, you know, not only looking for pockets of resistance, but we find again and again that abolition is really on the agenda. Abolition of the death penalty, which we engaged in deeply in Illinois. Abolition of prisons, because we can find a better way to organize a society than caging people and locking them away for life. And abolition of all the institutions that oppress us and building the kinds of institutions that would make us flourish, all of us. You know, we believe that all of us are better off when all of us are better off. So whenever, you know, freedom is the question, abolition is always the answer. It's in the national anthem, it's in the scurry and roach, it's in the closed partition between first class and coach. It's in the Sometimes you forget the lyrics to your own songs, and in that case, you just rock the fuck out of it. John Brown attacked the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, at the point where the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers meet in the fall of 1859. The plan was to seize the arms stored in the arsenal, to raise the cry of freedom, and to distribute arms to enslaved people fighting shoulder to shoulder in an extensive campaign for liberation and the ultimate end of slavery. Brown's small army of radical abolitionists numbered 22 including several of his sons and five African-Americans. You can meet them in a terrific book called Five for Freedom, the African-American Soldiers in John Brown's Army. Dangerfield Newby, at 44 years old, was the oldest of the fighters, and he joined with the intention of freeing his wife, Harriet. This is Eleanor Stein reading from the last letter Harriet sent to Dangerfield Newby, arriving just a few weeks before the assault on the arsenal and Dangerfield Newby's death. Her last letter came on August 16, right after hearing from Dangerfield. It is said Master is in want of money. If so, I know what time he may sell me, and then all my bright hopes of the future are blasted. For there has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles, that is to be with you. For if I thought I should never see you on this earth, would have no charms for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. I want to see you so much. And with added urgency, she wrote, I want you to buy me as soon as possible, for if you do not get me, somebody else will. There has been one bright hope to cheer me in all my troubles, that is to be with you. Dangerfield Nibley would carry these letters with him 
to the Kennedy Farm in Maryland, five miles from Harper's Ferry, where Brown's raiders would assemble and prepare for the assault. Dangerfield could not have foreseen that he would be the first fatality among the raiders and that Harriet and their children would indeed be sold south. Brown was captured on October 18, 1859 by U.S. troops led by Robert E. Lee. He was imprisoned in Charleston, Virginia and hanged on December 2nd. A huge crowd witnessed the hanging, including John Wilkes Booth and Walt Whitman. So much history, so much meaning, so many interpretations, so much to unpack and disentangle. His body was returned to North Elba and buried in front of his home. The remains of several of his followers who fought and died at Harper's Ferry were moved to this small graveyard in 1899. I was in a coffee shop recently wearing a giant button of John Brown on my vest and the barista said to me, oh, I love him. And I said, me too. And she said, I just think Walt Whitman is the best. And I said, well, I love Walt Whitman, but this isn't Walt Whitman. Who is it, she asked. It's John Brown, I said. Who's John Brown, she said. Exactly. John Brown is ignored, pilloried, dismissed, demonized in American history. But he's also been honored and exalted. The brilliant American artist Jacob Lawrence, who's most famous for doing the immigration series, did a series on John Brown, a series of large paintings of John Brown and his work both in Kansas and at Harper's Ferry. In fact, I have one of Jacob Lawrence's paintings tattooed on my back. And as the popular Civil War anthem had it, John Brown's body may lie moldering in the grave, but his truth goes marching on. In Brown's last interview, he noted that had he interfered on behalf of the rich or the powerful or the so-called great and suffered and sacrificed as he had, Every man in the courtroom would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. And on the gallows, he issued his famous final prophecy. I, John Brown, am quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. I had, as I now think, vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. The Civil War commenced in April. 1861. The, the John Brown of folk music was a guy by the name of Woody Guthrie. Whoa! And uh, Woody Guthrie wrote a song that I learned in the third grade, and it's a nice, it has a nice melody to it, but, but no one realizes that, because they censored the verses that explain what a radical John Brownish song this one is. Uh, Woody Guthrie, like John Brown, and like myself, and I suspect some of you here, believe that human liberation is the only answer, and that uh, this, is not, this is not the land of oligarchs, that this land was made for you and me. So I'm going to reinsert the secret censored verses of this song for you nice people today, and we're going to rock it together. You right. Are you with me, people? Are we in this together, people? As I was walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me a golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land. 
said, private property. But on the other side, it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. Come on. This land is your Jeff Jones and Martha Swan in dialogue about both the history and the contemporary struggle around John Brown's legacy. It's really great to be talking about this today. What's uh, both good and appalling about the situation is the extent to which we're talking about the same things so many years later. I mean, slavery was outlawed in New York State in 1827, finally outlawed. And yet almost immediately, the state legislature began working to take back the right of free black men to vote. Sound familiar? That is the reason that John Brown and his family moved to John Brown's farm in 1848. A leading New York abolitionist, Garrett Smith, who owned thousands of acres in the Adirondacks, made land available to free black families so that the men would have enough property to meet New York State's test of having to own two, at least $250 worth of land, worth of property in order to be able to vote. And so that's why John Brown and his family moved to the Adirondacks, because they had some farming experience and they wanted to support some of the freed Black communities that were getting organized, one of which was called Timbuktu. And uh, we at John Brown Lives have developed over the years, thanks to some great help from uh, some historians, the uh, exhibit Dreaming of Timbuktu, which is housed at John Brown's farm. You can find out the story about it and there's research going on even as we speak right now, uh, archeologists that we work with trying to discover more about the history of this. But to me, to think that John Brown moved to the Adirondacks in 1848, 174 years ago, to address the issue of protecting voting rights for black men, and that that is still an issue with us today, all these years later. It's, um, it, it gives meaning to why we put so much of our effort into telling this particular story and, and, and re related elements of that story in the Adirondacks. Tell a little bit about the history of how he got to North Elba. Well, John Brown has a very long and, and um, some people, some would say notorious history. Some people, some historians have said, He's the most controversial figure in American history. Uh, and they could be, they could absolutely be right because he is, he is the white man who was most militant in taking up arms in, in effort to defeat slavery. He felt that slavery was sinful. He was an Old Testament kind of guy and his religious beliefs were that one human being cannot own another human being, that all are equal, all deserve to be free. And as time went by in his life, he became more and more committed to that. So much so that some of the, in the 1850s, as there was the, uh, uh, basically this, the war that was taking place between Kansas and Missouri over what, whether or not uh, Missouri would enter the uh, United States as a free or slave state. Uh, John Brown and several of his sons and some of their supporters were out that we're, we're out in that part of the country. And actually, um, again, some historians will argue we're the decisive force, including the use of arms, that 
presented, uh, prevented the United States from having a majority of pro-slave states in the, in, in, in the, in the, in the Congress. That, that was the Kansas wars. That was what, what led to Kansas being referred to as bloody Kansas, right? That is correct. Yes. And, and he won a decisive battle against a much larger force, I believe in, was it, where was it in Kansas? Was it? Well, it was Potawatomi and uh, or Osawatomi. That's right. There were battles in both places. And Osawatomi was the name of a newspaper that you edited when you were underground, right? Well, nice of you to remember. <laughs> I remember everything. <laughs> you used to write for it. That's correct. Um, but it was named after John Brown because John Brown had a kind of particular significance in your life, in my life. And, and what was that significance? Well, I mean, our slogan for John uh, for, in those days, and we're talking about more than 50 years ago now, was uh, John Brown live like him. And what we meant by that was live as if black liberation and hu was was essential to human freedom and live um, with the intention of being not just an ally, but in solidarity with the struggle for black freedom. Yes, and, and take take risks that were comparable to the risks that black people were taking in the fight for freedom, which is what John Brown did. I mean, it cost him his life. Our slogan was live like him. And now we have an organization called John Brown Lives. Right. And let's let's bring Martha Swan into this conversation. Martha is the founder of John Brown Lives. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I founded John Brown Lives in 1999. Um, and had the good fortune to meet up with Russell Banks um, shortly after Cloud Splitter, his novel Cloud Splitter came out. And he and Noel Ignatiev and others were reviving this tradition of gathering at the farm um, on his birthday in May um, to honor him, remember him, and to um, to encourage us all, as as you said earlier, to live like him. And maybe you would describe, take us on a bit of a tour of the farm. You've been doing this for many years. I'd like you to take us on a tour of the farm and then talk a bit about this year's celebration, who the awardees were, and then what John Brown Lives is doing today. Um, I just came from there. It's the most gorgeous Adirondack uh, summer afternoon, so that's an easy thing to do. Um, it is a beautiful site. It's a beautiful 270 acre site uh, in the foothills of New York's highest peaks. And when you arrive at the farm, I'm gonna take you to the, walk you through past the farmhouse, past the gravesite to the Dreaming of Timbuktu exhibition that Jeff referenced, first of all, it's in the, what's called the upper barn. Um, and it really um, explains what John Brown uh, how he got there, why he got there, and it centers the Black experience and the struggle for political rights and civil rights um, as part of, as a central focal part of the story. So um, there are other exhibitions uh, about John Brown, the farmhouse that um, he and Mary and their many, many children lived in is open for tours. It's a very humble, um, clabbered uh, farmhouse, very simple. Um, and across from the farmhouse is the gravesite. Um, and the gravesite was uh, created um, around this boulder, a giant boulder, where it said that John liked to sit and pray um, in the shadow of the mountains. And there, uh, inside the this uh, tall iron gate, um, is the 
headstone of his grandfather, I, I believe it's his grandfather, um, who he wanted, John wanted his grandfather's headstone there. Um, there is, uh, there are a number of, of plaques and the remains of John and several of the raiders, both black and white, who, who fought with him in Harper's Ferry. Um, outside of the gravesite, uh, when you approach it's kind of interesting working backwards from Timbuktu that brought Brown there to what's there today in the traffic circle um, surrounding a statue of John Brown and a young black child that was that was commissioned and installed by the John Brown Memorial Association back in I think it was the early 1930s um, around that brings uh, brings us right up to you know the painful and horrific date um, and time that that our country is going through and that black America in particular is is suffering um, three two years ago the uh, visual artist and designer Ren Davidson Seward created a memorial field for black lives a series of now I think it's 100 simple gravestone looking epitaphs of people who've been of black people young men women children who've been killed by either the police or white supremacists white supremacists um, and this year she expanded the memorial field to really address what she what she calls the promise the the installation is called spiraling round the promise um, the struggle for the right to vote and in a series of markers that are um, installed in the ground is kind of a history 101 of the struggle for voting rights um, in New York State and across the country, bringing it absolutely right up to the present. So there's a resonance. Um, the, the history of the site, the meaning of the site carries a deep resonance today, and that's robustly illustrated through Wren's work. I found the memorial field so moving, and I, I took individual photos of several of the of the tombstones and the epitaphs, but um, especially noted um, civil rights workers who were killed um, uh, struggling for the right to vote. Um, uh, Eugene Williams, who was killed in Illinois, setting off, you know, the the red summer of nineteen nineteen. Um, uh, and and several others. It was really quite quite a moving um, installation and quite a moving artistic project. Mention who there were two other award winners this year for the John Spirit of John Brown Freedom Award. Mention those. Uh, Tiffany Ray Fisher, who's a choreographer and the artistic director of a modern dance company called Emerge 125, and Tom Morello, who hardly needs any introduction, um, the musician and, and activist. So it was a grand opportunity and honor to honor the three of them together. You know, again, it's really interesting that it was, it was the Black struggle for voting rights. It was Black people who led John Brown to the Adirondacks, right? And in 1922, it was black leaders from Philadelphia, J. Max Barber and Spontius Burwell, who, again, they came to the Adirondacks. They felt it was, it was vitally important as, as um, Dr. Barber wrote in an article in the Crisis Magazine, um, that 
he, he described John Brown as a great friend of the race. And he felt that, that he and fellow black people needed to recognize and, and pay homage to him. And thus began this pilgrimage in May of 2022, 1922 of traveling from, in, in that case, Philadelphia, on John Brown's birthday to lay a wreath on his grave. And that was a tradition that went for decades, decades and decades. And then it fell off. The last record we have um, in the archives in the Lake Placid Library show that the John Brown Memorial Association disbanded in 1986. Mm. So we figure it was probably around then that the annual pilgrimage ceased. But then, you know, as I mentioned, Russell and Noel and Jeff and you and Bernadine and Eleanor and others were instrumental in reviving that in 1999 and keeping it going all these years since. Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway nobody living can make me turn back now cause this land was made for you and me you're my own this land is your land this land is my land from California to the New York Islands from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Street I do want to mention July 2nd, we are going to be unveiling a historic marker that draws attention to Timbuktu and the Black Settlement voting rights struggle. So as as our board member and the archaeologist Hadley Krutzik Aaron says, this is the first time that the Black experience will be acknowledged, fully acknowledged. It changes the commemorative landscape of the region. So we're very excited about that. Um, one of our ongoing projects is called uh, In My Backyard, Geographies of Slavery and Freedom. And the idea is to involve students, to link students in different schools, um, to introduce them to the struggles for uh, slavery and freedom, or against slavery, the freedom struggles, through the experience of a particular individual with a foothold in the North and the South, a foothold in slavery and in freedom. And so the, the historical figure that lent herself to this project is Harriet Tubman. So for some eight years, we have been working in schools, bringing um, really students close to their backyard history about Harriet Tubman. And they, they do research, they, make, uh, they go on field trips related to Tubman's life, whether it's in Auburn or St. Catharines, Ontario, or Maryland, um, and then they work with the folk duo Magpie to write original songs about Harriet. And so at this point, we just, uh, I was just in Auburn the other day as uh, Greg and Terry of Magpie and Reggie Harris were working with, I think it was, well, fifth and sixth graders to re-record songs they had written in the past to have a professional recording of them because we're going to make them all available 
uh, to download for free with the lyrics, the musical notation, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully around the country, kids of all ages will be singing about Harriet Tubman with their parents and in their classrooms and with their grandparents and so forth. So that's that's a, a, a beautiful, meaningful, meaningful project that touches kids' lives. It, it has touched kids' lives in some very surprising ways. Give folks the website how they can contact John Brown Lives. JohnBrownLives.org. With the exclamation point or not? No, yet? they wouldn't let us put in the exclamation <laughs> okay. point. All right. So it's JohnBrownLives.org, and you can be in touch with Martha Swan, Jeff Jones, and the entire project. Very exciting. Jeff, what do you want to add? Can I talk about the Adirondacks hidden diversity for a moment? Yes. And this is, this is related to your question about the uh, solidarity with the prisons. The Adirondacks, if you haven't been there, it's an incredibly beautiful and wild place. And I came at it originally, even, I had a background of admiring John Brown, wanting to live like him. But when I started coming to the Adirondacks, it was for nature, it was for the environment. It was for the fact that we have this forever wild clause in the New York State Constitution that protects uh, really almost 3 million acres of backcountry land. And it, so it's just the, the environmental movement uh, loves the area. Um, but one of the things, one of the big problems is that it's, it's not, it's, we don't have equal access to this wonderful, great state resource. There's, uh, and so over the last 10 years or so, there's been a real conversation about how do we bring diversity to the Adirondacks? Well, it was a little frustrating to us at John Brown Lives to have this diversity conversation because we were aware all along of the Adirondacks hidden diversity. And that hidden diversity are the prisons as the, as the forest economy, as the timber economy was beginning to collapse in the Adirondacks, the uh, New York State began to, to build, continued to build prisons in the area. And we have five or six major penal institutions scattered around in some of the most beautiful parts of New York State. And we, we had friends who were in those prisons, Bill, and I would go to visit David and I would watch busloads of, of people, mostly people of color from coming up from New York City and Buffalo and other urban areas. And they would be getting off at these prisons and bracing themselves for the worst days that's imaginable not being treated very well, seeing their loved ones in these, in, in these horrible institutions, and, and then going home. And, and I've heard people say, boy, I never want to go to that place again as long as I live. So we were working with the Alliance for Families of Families for Justice and other similar organizations have been doing outreach to families visiting prisoners in New York State prisons for several, a number of years. And so that's just one of the programs that John Brown Liz does. But it's also really important to realize that uh, one of the great ironies of the area is that uh, we're having this sort of statewide conversation about how do we diversify access to the Adirondacks when we actually have this hidden diversity uh, right here in front of us. Is there anything that we haven't said about John Brown Lives that is essential for, them, for the people to know? Well, around the globe, other peoples hold up their heroes and martyrs who have died. You know, Nelson Mandela lives, Oscar Romero lives, and we can learn from those movements and draw inspiration and lessons from the heroes and martyrs, the freedom 
beacons of freedom. So in that, in that spirit of gratitude and, and recognition, John Brown lives. I love it. I really love it. And I think it's interesting that um, John Brown's reputation has been contested from the moment he uh, rose up as an abolitionist leader. And he's been a controversial and contested figure. But I think that organizations like yours um, play a hugely significant role in resurrecting the revolutionary John Brown, the freedom-loving John Brown, the humanist John Brown. And uh, hopefully that when we say John Brown lives, it's that spirit of peace, justice, freedom, love that we're holding up. Amen. All right, our final 45 seconds. Are we in this together, people? Yeah! Are we in this together, people? Yeah! And this is what we're going to do in our final 45 seconds together today. I'm going to sing the last secret censored verse of this song, and you're going to listen with rapt attention. And together, we're going to sing This Land is Your Land as loud as anybody has ever sung it within sight of the John Brown cabin. And then, before I ask this next question, one more time, how are we in this together, people? Yeah. I want everybody here, front to back, side to side, young and old, Protestant to Jews, <laughs> atheist and Catholic, the young and the old, when I give the signal to jump the fuck up in solidarity. Are we in this together, people? Yeah! All right, that was a complicated set of instructions. I'm gonna go through one more time. I sing the verse, you listen. Together we sing loudly, and then when I give the signal, we jump the fuck up. All right, here we go. In the squares of the city, in the shadow of the steeple, near the relief office, I see my people. Some are grumbling and all are wondering if this land still made for you and me. Tell them! This land is your land. This land is Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, to my co-conspirator, Light Ali, to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering, and to Roxana Espos for her wisdom and insight. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an abolitionist practice. With joy in my heart and freedom even more firmly on my mind. Until next time. <laughs>